I encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and tonight we're going to be taking a look at verses 12 through 13, as together we continue on in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, one of his prison epistles. I I do want to uh, uh, say that, I I just want to say thank you to everybody who prayed for me. Um, I, I did not know seriously whether I was going to be able to stand up for the entire sermon this morning, or make it through, but um, uh, I know it was because of your intercession at the throne of grace that I was able to do so, and uh, hopefully I will have enough energy to get through tonight once again uh, by God's grace and because of the prayers of his saints. So uh, before we turn our attention, though, to the word of God, let's go to the God of the word and let's ask once again for him to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Do join me. Sovereign Lord, we pray now that you would turn our attention away from the things of this fleeting world, and instead you would help us to think on the most important things, the things of salvation. Lord, we were put into this world to worship you, to seek you, and to find you through your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help me now to emphasize the importance of working out our salvation, the importance of sanctification in the life of the Christian, that we would understand these verses and be able to apply them. I pray also, Lord, that we would be able to explain them to others when it comes to that. I pray now, Lord, that you would drive away all of those distractions that come in whenever the word is being preached and help us to fix our attention on your word and the things that will count for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, I remind you, this is the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't know if you've ever considered the the number of times in the Gospels that Jesus asks people to do things that are absolutely impossible in their own power, things that they could not normally do. For instance, take the examples of the cripple at the pool of Bethesda. In John 3, 8 and 9, we read, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And then think of the paralytic in Capernaum. You know the story, how they uh, uh, opened up the roof and lowered him down in front of Christ because the crowd uh, that was gathered in the uh, house to hear him was too great to be able to put him uh, before the master any other way. So in Matthew 9, 6, and 7, we read, But you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And then perhaps most importantly, of all those examples, we could go through uh, probably a dozen or more examples within the Gospels alone where that kind of exchange occurs. But the one that strikes me the most always is Lazarus in his tomb. You know the story. He goes to uh, his friend who has died. He spent four days in the tomb. At that point in time, he would have been in advanced stages of decomposition. Uh, so much so that one of the sisters is appalled at the idea that the stone would be rolled away because there would be a stench. But we read in John eleven forty one. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
And I know that you always hear me because of the people who are standing by. I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, notice that in all those cases that I cited there, Jesus told them to do something. He didn't say, I'm going to carry your bed to your home now. Uh, And he certainly didn't say, hold on, Lazarus, I'm coming in to carry you out. He didn't do that. But they didn't do what they were called upon to do by the Lord in their own power. Neither the cripple nor the paralytic had the power to take up their beds and walk prior to Christ healing them and giving them the power to do so. And Lazarus certainly had no power of his own to overcome death and then leave the tomb prior to Christ, restoring him and raising him. In the same way, in the process of sanctification, brothers and sisters, that process by which Christians grow in holiness and we grow in likeness to Christ, we are commanded, are we not, in the Bible again and again, to do certain things that we do not have the power to do in and of ourselves. For instance, have you ever considered the difficulty just of the command that Christ gave regarding enemies in Matthew 5.44 and then the way he concludes it? If you want to turn in your Bibles, actually, to Matthew 5.44, it's worth considering these commands of Christ. We read there, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect." without some sort of fundamental change within us, a power that that we don't have operating within us, then we don't have the capacity to truly love our enemies. I, I know how I was before I met with Christ, before my heart was changed. I did not love my enemies. I hated them. I wanted only evil for them all the time. And so if we were able to, to truly love our enemies in an absolutely... Uh, unfeigned way, so we're not just gritting our teeth and pretending, or or even to make us sincerely want to do that. I mean, think about that, not loving people who are uh, indifferent towards us, or people who like us, but people who hate us, who wish evil towards us. If we are going to have the desire sincerely to love them, then something has to be changed within us. The ability to do that naturally is beyond us, and yet we're called by Jesus Christ as his followers, as his people, to do exactly that. And this is all part and parcel of working out our salvation, which is the life task, brothers and sisters, of you, the Christian. That's what you're called to, to work out your salvation. Now, what is meant by Paul here has sometimes been grossly misunderstood at times. Paul is not saying, we need to emphasize this, Paul is certainly not saying, save yourself by your good works. That is not the the teaching of this verse. That would flatly contradict, for instance, what he says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by the grace of God you've been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But, though we are saved by grace, 
by the power of God, working faith within us, connecting us to Jesus Christ, we need to answer the question, what are we saved for? Were we saved merely to be saved? Well, that idea is as silly as the idea that you were born merely to be born. You were not born simply into this world to, to mark another birth in the human race. You were born for a reason. I said before that you came into this world to worship God. That was what you were made for. And so too we were saved, what, for what? We were saved for good works, weren't we? That answer is given immediately after uh, verses 8 and 9 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So properly understood, and this is a very important thing to understand, properly understood, your justification, the means by which you are made right with God, your sins cleansed away, your righteousness established, your ability to come into the presence of God, set down, that happens by faith alone. But that salvation results in something wonderful. It results in salvation and good works and the power to do those good works is given to you those power those good works that were ordained by a sovereign god and think about this the works that you were meant to do the works that you were put into this world to do were ordained just as surely as your initial salvation was ordained god intended that all of these things would come to pass but your initial salvation is through the power of God working in you. And then your ability to do what he commands, that too is by the power of God working in you. First, changing your heart, giving you a new inclination. Those of you who are saved in adulthood will remember the way that your heart was inclined prior to coming to Christ. You will remember the things that you once loved, the things that you once desired, the evil that you were attracted to and the way that you were not inclined towards that which was good, certainly that which was religious. You could feign that, you could pretend it, but you could not really in earnest say, I love God and I want to do his good works. I hated God. I could not stand Christ or Christians. As I've said many a time, it's amazing, isn't it, that we never stop to ponder the question, why is it that it's the Christian God we hate the most? <laughs> Not, you know, nobody gets upset by Thor. It's, uh, oh, you hate that guy with the hammer. And so, you know, that, that's not the case. Why is it? It's because there's only one God who's truly our creator, and that is the Lord God Almighty. And until he does that changing work within us, our inclinations are bent away from him. We are totally depraved, dead in our sins and trespasses, as it says in Ephesians 2.1. But then he gives us a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone. He puts in the heart of flesh. And he gives us a willingness to do his commandments. Ezekiel said he will put his commandments within us. Give us a new moral law that guides our life. Give us new light within us. Changing our hearts. And then giving us not only the ability to work and to do his good pleasure, but the desire to do that. The desire to go out and to work for the kingdom, to be about our Father's work as we were speaking about this morning. Now, as you know, Paul has been seeking to extinguish the great monster that destroys Christian uh, congregations and denominations, and that is the monster of pride in the midst of the Philippians. Uh, Calvin says that the reminder 
that they are to work out their salvation by God's power is the very way to do it. He puts it this way. He says, this is the true engine for bringing down all haughtiness. This is the sword for putting an end to all pride. When we are taught that we are utterly nothing and can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. I mean supernatural grace which comes forth from the spirit of regeneration. What are you but what God has made you? Why on earth would we be proud Christians when we know for a fact that we would not be Christians at all were it not God working in us to will and to do? It is His grace, His goodness, His kindness, and moreover, His power that enables us to do everything that we are enabled to do. What do we have that He hasn't given us? And therefore, why would we be proud? Why would we go about self-righteously or be haughty with our fellow Christians? What are we better than they, should be the question we ask. Compared to God, all of us are infinitely small, and yet, how gracious he has been to us. So, when he says, that is when Paul says, they must do this work, they are called to do that, not in a haughty spirit, They're called to do those good works with fear and trembling. And when he talks about that fear and trembling, he's not talking about a slavish fear, but rather they must do the work that God calls them to wholeheartedly. They must do it with respect and with awe. They must do it trusting in God and not in their own selves. They must do it also humbly and without any dependence upon their own righteousness, for they have no righteousness of their own. All of their righteousness comes from God. And they must do those good works eagerly, but leaning entirely upon God. When we set out to do works in our own power, oh, how far short of the mark we come. I I remember there was many a time, uh, especially in my early years, I went into the pulpit thinking, man, this is the best sermon that any second-year pastor has ever written in the history of mankind. I mean, it is so perfectly arranged. I've got all the quotes and so on. And I preached in my own power, and people were bored silly. I mean, just flopping around. Please let this end. Get him to the end. He said three points. It seems like 16 at this point. And I would come down from the pulpit utterly deflated, and it gradually began to occur to me Well, that's because you went up there in your own power. And look what the Lord did. He said, okay, man of God, let me show you how well you do by yourself. On the other hand, there have been times when I have ascended the pulpit entirely destitute of any sort of power of my own, just clinging to God and hoping he gets me through it. Like this morning, for instance, just hoping I would be able to stand up to the end. And the Lord has been very gracious in those circumstances. You think you will find that it's the same thing for you, not necessarily in preaching, but in sharing the faith and doing the Father's work, however you do it. If you do it humbly, depending upon Him, leaning upon Him, looking to Him, praying to Him for help, you will find that is when you are most successful. I believe also that Paul is saying that in light of his situation, I mean, he is in a Roman jail. He is awaiting sentence. They need to be able to learn to do this, to work out their own salvation without depending upon the presence of Paul or or any other apostle with them. You can see a kernel of that, I think, if you look uh, at the parallel between Philippians 1.27 and 2.12. Go ahead and turn back to Philippians 1.27. We read there, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, 
or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Your love and willingness to work for the Lord should be the same, whether I'm there or whether I'm not. Don't depend upon me. Far too often in Christian history, the people of God have become too dependent upon the ministrations of, of some human being, one particular man. Uh, for instance, one of my favorite preachers in the world, one of my spiritual mentors, a man I've quoted more often than I think I've quoted anybody else, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But a sober reflection upon how central he made himself to his ministry at the Metropolitan Tabernacle perhaps indicates that he made people a little too dependent upon him. I know how that works. I loathe delegating. Okay, I, I, I want to, I, I'm, I'm OCD, uh, I have this desire to micromanage everything, and this is a spirit that I have striven over the years to kill within me. One of the reasons why uh, I, was, um, I am so zealous for us to have working committees that are, are doing that work by themselves is so that I won't have to be involved in them, and that on the day that I have the heart attack, the stroke, get hit by a bus, uh, choke on a hot dog, whatever, on that particular day, that the church won't come to a grinding halt. Because that has happened in the history of various ministries when men have made themselves too central. They didn't bounce back after the death of that central or the sudden absence of that central figure. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's not by death. It's by some sort of sin that the person is removed from that particular pedestal. And then suddenly the church doesn't know what to do. They fall apart. A, a more obvious example of that would be the Mars Hill ministry in Seattle, which fell apart after the, um, uh, the downfall of uh, Mark, what's his name? Doesn't matter. Moving on. Mark what? Mark Driscoll, thank you. <laughs> I guess it does matter. Mark Driscoll. Moving on. Uh, but whether or not we realize it, ministers, elders, we can become too central to the ministry and the people that we are ministering over can learn to work out their salvation only with the presence of that person and with his help. Uh, and one of the many mistakes that I made in my early ministry was trying to be the Holy Spirit for members of the congregation. You cannot do that. Uh, particularly in the case of those who are falling short, what did I do? I was constantly scampering around behind them. I was constantly in touch with them, constantly uh, exhorting them. I, I have to tell you, it doesn't work. You can't be the Holy Spirit for any individual. You really cannot. And it exhausts you. It, it, it is so draining. Um, and I believe that that may have had a lot to do with why Spurgeon worked himself to death and died in his 50s. He was absolutely central to the ministry, uh, every ministry within his church. Now, Paul is telling you that you need to be motivated by more than just, he says to the Philippians, his presence with them. He wants their obedience to flow from your dependence on God. That's what he's saying. Be dependent upon me, not, uh, be dependent upon God, not me, rather. And incidentally, uh, parents, we can be guilty of this as well. A lot of Christian kids see their faith dwindle when they leave the house, precisely because their obedience was motivated by and dependent on not the power of God, but the presence of their parents. 
It was a terrarium faith. And once they were removed from the terrarium, like hothouse flowers, they died. Uh, sometimes even worse, it's their youth pastor and the youth group. Once they're taken out of that, the faith just dwindles away to absolutely nothing. And why? Because they weren't being taught to work out their own salvation. That is something that we must be doing. When we are mentoring somebody or when we're raising our children, we have to be emphasizing, this is work you've got to do. Mommy, daddy, the youth master, whoever, does not have a roll of tickets. They will not meet you at the gate of heaven and say, here's yours that they have obtained by their own efforts. But rather, our salvation is something that we are to be striving towards. And by salvation, I don't mean obviously our justification. I mean our sanctification, the wholeness of our salvation. Another thing to remember is exactly this, that sanctification is a process. It is a progressive process, and often, most often, sanctification is difficult. It is hard. Sanctification is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Sanctification is not Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. It is a walk, a constant walk in the same direction, and it is sometimes over very difficult terrain. Sometimes you are ascending the hill difficulty. Sometimes the sun does shine and you get to, you know, I skip along in those broad sunlit uplands that Churchill described. But most of the time it's in the valleys. Sometimes you get a view of heaven from the peak. You really do. I've had Christian experiences like that. I hope you have as well. But we have to spend a long time in the hard slog as well as we are gradually being conformed to the image of Christ. And it should not surprise us. The one who walked the path of sorrows, the man of sorrows, is our Savior. And therefore, in following him, we know that sometimes our road will be dolorous, a great old word meaning full of sorrow but sorrow that leads to eternal happiness. That's the wonderful thing, Christians. Here on earth, we experience tribulation, difficulty, affliction, and sorrow for a little while. But then we pass through the grave, uh, the, well, the grave and the veil, and from that point onwards, we know nothing but joy and glory and happiness eternally. A little sorrow now leading to glory later on, as opposed to those who choose to have their glory now, who try to live a life of constant happiness, not following the Lord, and who instead end up with eternal affliction. That shouldn't be something that you even debate about, but that you want your sorrow now, and, and you'll pass on the affliction later. Hendrickson put it very well this way when he was describing um, the, the nature of our sanctification, the progress through it. He says, Paul has in mind continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. Continue to work out. Believers are not saved at one stroke. Their salvation is a process. It is a process in which they themselves, far from remaining passive or dormant, take a very active part. It is a pursuit, a following after, a pressing on, a contest, fight, race, putting forth such a constant and sustained effort is not easy. It is a battle on three fronts, a warfare against the tremendously strong and wily combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It will mean making full use of every God-appointed means to defeat the evil and bring out the good within them, within them, because God placed it there. That's one of the reasons why the means of grace is so absolutely necessary. 
without the means of grace, without that constant refreshing grace from God that recharges us, if I can put it that way, using the electric car simile, because I can't use gasoline any longer. I think there's a law against that now, isn't there, in sermons. But uh, we need that, that constant recharging that comes by the means of grace. We need to be refreshed by him. We are leaky vessels. You will find that going to church once and then staying away is not going to cut it any more than recharging once and then expecting to go on that one charge is going to as well. You need the constant infilling of the Holy Spirit. You need his grace to continue on in this world. Now, the agents, as you all know from what we've we've read and discussed and so on, of this process of progressive sanctification whereby we are conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ as God the Holy Spirit. And unless we have been born again, we don't have that spirit dwelling within us. And therefore, all our attempts at spiritual growth and reform or improvement will ultimately fail. We must first have closed with Christ. There must have been that essential union. We have to be saved or we aren't even started in the process of sanctification. As John Owen put it uh, so very well, he said, A man may easier see without eyes, speak without a tongue, than truly mortify one sin without the Spirit. We, if we are going to be people who are growing in holiness, have to have the Spirit dwelling within us. So we must have closed with God. One of the, the, the grave mistakes amongst many that Charles Grandison Finney made was he he was a Pelagian, essentially, in his theology. He believed that anybody could follow Christ. It didn't require any sort of regeneration. didn't require any infilling of the Holy Spirit. He believed that we all had this ability, naturally, to do the works of God. And all that we had to do was just do the works. Go out and do the works. And so he preached moralism. He went from place to place. He condemned men for, as sinners and told them, you must change, and you have the ability to change. And they tried. And they found after a little while it didn't work. And so they gave up. And the sad thing was that it produced these large regions throughout upstate New York, particularly that were described as the burned over regions because Christian preachers would go to them later on and they would say, I'm here to preach the gospel. And they would say, oh, I tried. It doesn't work. I tried to commit, all, uh, to, to, uh, to commit myself to, to no longer sinning, no longer drinking, no longer beating the wife and the dog. But uh, I found after a few weeks that I went back to all my old habits. Well, of course they did, because there was no power within them, no inclination, no desire. They had never actually encountered the living Christ and the regeneration that, that brings. And that's why Finney's revivalism failed so, so badly. Remember then, let me leave you with this, this quote from Calvin. He says this, It is God that calls us and offers to us salvation. It is our part to embrace by faith what he gives, and by obedience act suitably to his calling. But we have neither from ourselves. Hence we act only when he has prepared us for acting. So pray that he would. Pray that he would make that change within you and give you that new spirit that enables you to be conformed to the image of God. Well, God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord. For your word, we thank you for the encouragements that it gives us. I do thank you this day that you have given me the strength to stand upright. I know, Lord, that I am a, a man with feet of clay, a sinner saved only by grace. Uh, but I pray, Lord, that your people have heard the word of God and that they are now animated and desirous of following you, knowing that they do so by your power. Help us, O oh Lord, never to preach a gospel of mere moralism telling people to be good, 
let us always make it very clear that unless a man goes to Christ for salvation first, he will never be good. He doesn't have the power within himself any more than a dead man can free himself from the tomb. O oh Lord, help us, therefore, to be witnesses to the saving grace and the power of change that comes only through 